0: Welcome to the 297th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I welcome Agnes Arnold-Forster and Sam Scotland to discuss pandemic stress and burnout among healthcare workers. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID Calls live on weekdays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can hear COVID Calls anytime, recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests future topics, and please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, June 23rd, 2021, there are 3,885,531 deaths globally from COVID-19. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. 128,027 deaths from COVID-19 are reported in the UK, The United States is now reporting 602,705 deaths. In India, the death toll has risen to 390,660. That's an official count, although news organizations anticipate that that number is too low. And in Colombia, right now, the death toll is 101,302 lives lost to COVID-19. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic. And I'd like to continue that now. The headline is, Colombia's COVID-19 death toll surpasses 100,000 victims. This was written by Richard Emblen, appeared June 21st, 2021 in the city paper. Monday marked a tragic milestone for Colombia and the fight against coronavirus. 100,582 victims of the disease, including the day's 648 fatalities and grim single-day record, was established. Almost 16 months after the first case of coronavirus was confirmed in the country on March 6, 2020, few could have imagined the numbers in fatalities surpassing six digits and per-day deaths near 600. The daily mortality rate has almost doubled with the third wave of COVID-19 infection and exacerbated as of late April with anti-government protests in the country. After one of the world's longest lockdowns, 167 days, before restrictions were eased back in August of 2020, Bogota remains at the epicenter of the pandemic, adding some 11,000 new cases every day in June compared to 400 cases during the same time frame last year. The dramatic surge in new cases and deaths has been accompanied by the economic reactivation of every commercial sector and the lifting of night curfews and the identity card measure Pico e Sedulia. The gradual return of trade shows and congresses as well as reopening of bars and gastropubs with biosecurity protocols was justified by Mayor Claudia Lopez. Based on the serious impact the pandemic has had on households and businesses, It sounds absolutely contradictory from an epidemiological point of view to have 97 percent occupation of intensive care units and to announce a reopening, stated Lopez on June 7th. From a social, economic and political context with deep institutional mistrust, unacceptable poverty and unemployment that's especially affecting women and young people, it is necessary to reopen, she said. Concerts and in-person sporting events remain excluded from the reopening. Despite ICU occupation in Bogota leveling off at 97% last weekend, or 58 beds available from a total of 2,261, on Saturday, in yet another defiant move, the National Strike Committee was promoting an outdoor concert at the national park for the following day. The disconnect between Mayor Claudia Lopez and pro-strike events that headline artists who in their own right should be held accountable for propagating contagion among audiences is also an affront to the great majority of Bogota's 8 million residents who respect health measures and the district's last remaining restrictions. Colombia's victims of COVID-19 and passing the 100,000 Merck comes days after Brazil registered 500,000 victims among its population of 214 million compared to 50 million, and which shows that South America continues to be among the most impacted continents with high mortality rates. Surpassed by Peru with 192,202 deaths and close to Argentina's 89,043 deaths, the third wave of infections and deaths in Colombia will continue for at least another month, affirmed the Ministry of Health as a result of the demonstrations, riots, and road blockades of the national strike. President Iván Duque, during a small religious ceremony inside Casa de Nariño to commemorate the victims of COVID-19, remarked that more than 100,000 deaths from COVID-19 could have been prevented if the country hadn't witnessed agglomerations during the last six to seven weeks, a statement directed at the National Strike Committee. The most lethal wave of the health emergency, according to the Ministry of Health, comes as the country continues its vaccine rollout with 15 million doses administered, of which 4.6 million have been allocated for second doses. On Sunday, the country broke a new record with 317,532 doses given to persons age 45 or older. The news on Monday that Colombia topped 100,000 victims was accompanied by 23,239 additional cases of infection, raising the national total to almost 4 million. The story was titled, Columbia's COVID-19 Death Toll Surpasses 100,000 Victims. Okay, I'd like to turn to my conversation for today. Let me introduce you to my guests. Dr. Agnes Arnold-Forster is a historian of medicine, work, and the emotions. She's a postdoctoral researcher in the Social Studies of Medicine Department at McGill University and has published on the History of Cancer surgery, and the emotions of healthcare labor. Sam Shotland is a historian of medicine, emotions, and capitalism. He's pursuing an MD at the University of Michigan and a PhD in history of science and medicine at Yale University, and has published on the history of children's health and doctors' emotions. Agnes and Sam, thank you so much for joining me on COVID Calls today.
1: Thanks for having us.
0: Thank you for having us. I'll start the way I generally do, just to find out where you're calling from, get a sense of the pandemic looks like their perhaps the vaccination situation is there, ag- can I start with you on that, please?
1: Um, sure. So Montreal has been a slow starter, I would say, um, but it has got a lot better recently. Um, vaccinations are going up. I've had my first jab. I've managed to move forward my second. Um, and things like restaurants and bars are slowly opening up. And I think we're down to fewer than 100 cases a day now. So. Yeah, it's been a long time coming, but it does feel like we are on a kind of positive trajectory, I'd say.
0: And the situation on campus there, are the things back to something that looks sort of normal or or things still mostly closed down?
1: Things are still mostly closed down. And there is talk about going back into in-person teaching in the autumn, but um, there's also uh, and it's going to be a continuation, I think, of blended learning um, hmm. questions about. What international students in particular are going to do, because Canada has very, quite robust border policies about people coming in and quarantining
0: and things like that. Sam, same question to you, just about where you're calling from and how it's looking there.
2: Yeah, so I, I'm calling to you from the bustling metropolis of Ann Arbor, Michigan. Um, but how, how are th- how are things looking over here? Um, well, as you know, in in fall of 2020, um, Michigan had a pre- had a pretty big spike in ter- in terms of COVID, and now um, six well. Seven or eight months later, um, thing, things are are significantly better. Um, the university The University of Michigan has been uh, has been executing its uh, vaccine rollout program, um, and I have I I was for- I was fortunate enough um, to receive the jab. Uh, I, I I'm I'm a, I'm a member of the fi- uh, the Pfizer gang as a, as opposed to the Moderna crew, um, and I, I had that I had that occur in uh early in early January. I was I was very, very lucky as as a as a medical student. Uh things are things are opening things are gradually opening up over over here. Um the the under the undergrad it's not remotely clear if the undergrad if the undergrads even noticed if there was a cha- if there was a change. Uh for not to mor not to moralize. Um but thing things are things are definitely things are definitely opening up. I happen to live in a um a, med- a medical fraternity in which we have there are twenty six there are twenty six of us, and our pol- our policies have, cert- have certainly changed and, and and we are we are um, gradually in, in allowing more pe- people to come into our house uh, and if vaccinated un- uh, unmasked uh, and the, so that gives you, that might give you some some sense of w- what it's like on the ground or at least in in the medical area in Ann Arbor.
0: I think I'm not familiar with the concept of a medical fraternity.
2: It's bizarre <laughs> it's absolutely it's absolutely b- bizarre so es- essential essentially it's exactly what it sounds like I mean when, when you have when you have um, in the 1870s and 80s with the, with the rise of the of the Greek system with um, you also have this translate to um, medical schools and um, and uh, at, the, at in the 1920s there were approximately at admission Mich- at the University of Michigan at least there were about 12 I, I, this is a very um, don't, perhaps don't cite me on this but there were perhaps about 11 or 12 different medical fraternities and it was a, it was a they were places of camaraderie um, of studying uh, yes people were boorish and, and and I drank lots of alcohol not not to not unto, um, unlike uh, certain fraternities today at, uh, luckily at, at Michigan at Firo Sigma where I, I I happen to be calling you from um, we uh, we are co- we were we are co-ed uh, I think we're, we're very, I think we're very. I think we very. I think we're very progressive, and I, it's perhaps been one of the best. It's perhaps been one of the best experiences um, I've had, and one mm-hmm. of the best decisions I've made during medical school. So, but yes, wow. um, medical fraternities are under research chapter for sure in the history of medical education. Uh,
0: That's fascinating. Now, thank you for sharing that. It adds yet one more sort of social space to sort of imagine how infection control was understood and managed. But a particularly interesting, you know, with the questions around the dinner table at the medical fraternity about whether to lift lockdown, that's um, that's a serious amount of expertise at the at the table. I, if I could just follow up, I've been asking questions who are, to guests who are based in North America where things have been trending mm-hmm. the right way, if they wouldn't mind sharing also maybe a strong memory or association of the last 17 months, something that really registers for them what this pandemic period has looked like. And Sam, let me ask you that first. Mm-hmm
2: yeah it's it's tough because there's, there's 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 so many there's so many there's so many memories uh, um well i guess I'll, I'll go i'll go about this as a student um so in march of 2020 i i was i was studying um uh, neurology i was in the, the in the midst of neurology so I, I was i was learning about all the different cranial nerves um and uh we we were re- we were we had just returned from we had just returned from spring break and what i what i just what i distinctly remember what uh, Was there 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 was a tremendous amount of of uncertainty. Um, class, classmates were classmates were uh, were joking joking around. The under the undergraduates were were still out partying. There was and and there was there was a lot of tension. And I, I, I and I I and I and what one of the things I uh, in the in the frat there eventually um, half of the frat would 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 leave to go would, would leave to go home. Um, and they were, they were sort of, they were sort of running on a bare bones. So, but what I remember was just this, this existential dread because not, we, none of us were sure. And especially in terms of studying, I, I mean, um, of course studying during, um, uh, the uh, everything that happened with George Floyd was impossible, but with, with the early days of COVID, it was, uh, I, I couldn't focus on sub uh, subarachnoid hemorrhages
0: to save my life. Agnes, just thank you for sharing that, Sam. Same question to you, if you you don't mind.
1: Well, I had a slightly unusual, well, I suppose so many people's experiences are different, but I started, well, last March, I was living in London, in the UK, um, and so I moved to Canada this March, just gone, Um, and so that was the whole experience in and of itself, kind of trying to cross um, borders. Um, At this point in time, uh, we had a stack of paperwork like this big in order just to get through the the various airports we have to travel through and um, but definitely i had a sort of similar experience of um i suppose existential dread at the beginning of march last year i mean i'm basically a five-year-old and i love my birthday and um my uh, birthday was on the 19th of march which is right at the beginning of the pandemic and when it was all starting to kind of become clear that this was not just any old virus and this is going to have some sort of like fundamental you know, life-altering impacts. And I think one of the things that was really tricky about those early days that then kind of continued being really tricky, and I say tricky, it's not like, you know, a big drama or anything, but that kind of having to navigate lots of different people's um, varying perceptions of risk or ideas about what um, like good behavior or like adhering to rules looks like, especially in the early days when those rules were pretty imprecise. And, you know, the UK was very slow to lock down, relatively speaking. And so there was a lot of, there's a lot of flex in there, lots of subjectivity in like what we thought we were able to do. And so me and all my friends and family trying to figure out what the right approach was going to be, um, and so I remember that being particularly tortured and being, you know, particularly stroppy about having to, um, you know, not do the celebrations that I had planned and then quickly got a sense of perspective, of course. But, you know, it was definitely a, an emotional time.
0: <laughs> yeah. Thank you for taking us back to that. And I, it certainly resonates with me. The, I think I've shared this before, but the the taking things off the calendar, which I was slow and reluctant to do. And I look back now, I'm like, I had things on the calendar for June that I thought I was going to do, like and left them on there till April. And there was something going on there that defies epidemiological wisdom. I just couldn't couldn't take them off the calendar.
1: Absolutely, I was very similar. I had, I think, I had a trip for work planned to Canada actually last um, March and large last, last April, and I just was so reluctant to commit to the idea that that was not going to happen you know, knowing full well it was definitely not going to happen, but just sort of making that sort of emotional next step was was particularly tricky.
0: Well, let's, let's turn to, a bit to the, the conversation at hand and the research that you both have been doing and the work that you're um, bringing to us at this time. It's really an important set of questions and, and really innovative work, and I'm glad we have time to talk about it. Um, Agnes, I'm going to start with you on this, and it's just a kind of a broad question. So we're talking about stress and burnout and anxiety among healthcare workers, very broadly defined. And we're going to talk about that in terms of um, physicians, nurses, but also support staff of all different types. And um, we have the benefit today of also putting that in historical perspective, which is, I think, quite useful. And I've talked to physicians on here about the stress that they've dealt with as you bring this extra sort of understanding um, from medical history for us. But I guess my first question, Agnes, to you is just about what you've been watching for during the pandemic, the kinds of anecdotes or stories or data points that may be out there that give you some sort of sense of the scale of the problem. I mean, we can talk about death counts or we could talk about full ICUs. Those to me don't seem to be very sharp instruments to actually understand things like stress and anxiety.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I think probably the most um, dramatic statistic that I came across um, was quite recent. Um, I think it was in just in May of this year, possibly April, the British Medical Association, which is the British medical kind of union for, for doctors, um, they released some survey data that found that about a fifth of UK doctors were considering leaving the profession entirely, um, partly as a result of this past year or or that this past year has sort of confirmed some pre-existing concerns or experiences or feelings they were having about their work. Um, And I think for me that really tapped into some of the big issues that are so fundamental to our work, my work, Sam's work, which is that this is, you know, not just the sort of story of human cost, right? That this is not just a kind of an important um, subject to study because it talks about real pain and suffering experienced by people, you know, who are just going about their daily jobs. But also the kind of policy implications and the future planning, the workforce planning for big, complex healthcare systems, and how these sorts of emotional turmoils or these sorts of stresses and strains that people are placed under, um, that they can have this uh, really tangible impact on what we're going to do going forward. We need a robust healthcare system. We need a robust workforce in, you know, to deliver healthcare mm-hmm. and these sorts of problems have really debilitating effects on how long people's career duration and their commitment to their, to their careers. Um, so, yeah, for me, that felt like a particularly kind of poignant moment that summed up a lot of the stuff that I've been kind of thinking about and, and, and writing about this past 17 months or so.
0: Sam, I'm going to bring you in on that. I mean, and you're as a medical student yourself, I mean, mm-hmm. um, it's a deferred gratification, right, to long training, to then... To then think that a fifth of people in the profession in the UK is a startling number that Agnes uh, sort of pulls out that people might be considering leaving the profession. It's not something you do lightly when you've committed yourself to that career.
2: Absolutely, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I I, I think it's, um, uh, especially with especially speaking as an MD PhD student, it's it, it's uh, it's very much the embodiment of delayed gratif- delayed gratification, but. Um, I think for I, I think Agnes's anecdote is uh, or Agnes's statistic is 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 very illustrative and I and I hope that the one I prov- I, I I'm hoping to provide an anecdote that will hopefully um, yeah, uh, juxtapose well with that so yeah for for me uh, for me I I, th- I think a lot about the uh, what you could, I guess you could call the mar- the martyrdom of uh, of um, healthcare heroes as much as I hate the, as much as Agnes and I both dislike the term especially um, especially those who have died by those of the uh, uh, those of whom who have died by suicide I specifically I I think of uh, Lorna, Lorna Breen who is an emergency physician doctor uh, in New York at Columbia at Columbia I, I, I believe who uh, rec- who um, was diagnosed with with covid and, and then and then during the uh, as I understand uh, during um, and then eventually um, who had who had no a previous history of any emotional distress, well, um, only to sort of deteriorate quite rapidly, and eventually died. By, and eventually, it di- uh, was hospitalized. And then, as, as I understand it, um, and then died, and, and then died by suicide. And what I think about is that there there are a number uh, there are a number there are a number of these an- of these anecdotes that are that are circulating right now. And what and what may and what makes um, one death particularly exceptional, or what what does it what does it take to, um, to create, to essentially, uh, create a, a martyr. And it raises, um, because, because certainly, uh, in the 19, uh, in the 1970s, uh, and, and earlier, you see this, you see a statistic that's quite frequently cited, even one that circulates today in which, um, a full class of doctors, uh, will, will die every year by suicide or, or is lost every year by suicide. And, it, it, what's interesting for me is it raises these it raises tension uh, these questions about the tensions between sort of the individual and the and the collective the way Agnes the, the way Agnes is talking about a little bit, um, and also about the questions about who is ultimately who is ultimately responsible for the well be for the health and well being of these practitioners and um, what does it what does it take to um, to spark a, what does it take to, to spark a movement I mean I think of course of um, Libby I think of Libby Zion, um, and. Uh, the residency re- residency reform hours, um, so yeah, I, I think for me, I think for me, it, it's um, it's it's probably um, the coverage surrounding Lorna, Lorna Breen.
0: Hmm. And Sam, is there are there metrics within the medical profession? We've got two on the table right now: uh, 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 retirement rate, maybe the acceleration of retirement rate above what you might expect, suicide rate. What are some of the other measures that are out there that may be considered the kind of give, you know, a, some a kind of an aggregate sense of stress in the profession? If if those kind of measures exist,
2: they do. You know, it's a great it's a great question. And it's 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 one that Agnes and I have talked, have talked a lot about. Um, yeah. So, so um, there are there are efforts to, to sort of um, look at biological variables as as well. As um, social, more social science or, psycho, or psychological variables. So on the one hand, pe- people are, are are attempting to um, track change. Uh, um, to they will they will do bio they they will um, do biomedical studies. So for for example. Um, there is a study that was put out by um, someone who I, I I work with here at Michigan. Uh, his name is Srijan Sen. He runs something called the Intern Health Study. He's an uh, MD, PhD, psychiatrist, in which he found that um, the telomeres of uh, of physicians versus non physicians, um, the the former their telomeres, so that that's the that's the end of a particular chromosome that's associated with with aging, shortened by uh, uh, six times as much as a, a non- as a non physician. So, so so certainly that there's like bi- there there. Are Biomedical um, metrics that people are using, and then, and then, and then, and then certainly, and um, uh, in, in terms of the more, in terms of like the more, psycho, more like psychological questions, people are, are administering all kinds of psychological inventories, and um, so um, the mass like burnout. I mean, because we're we're now in a sort of a, a an age of burnout. I mean, we're in an age of burnout, or so, uh, or, or so. Um, uh, our, our our boomer friends would tell us, um, and. So there are pe- there are people who are using who are using um, things like the Maslach Index, um, the Copenhagen Index. There there are there are, num- there are num- um, people are also using metrics associated with satisfaction, with well being, um, and it, and Ag- and um, and I'll make it and I'll, I'll briefly say this, and then I'll, I'll defer to Ag- I'll defer to Agnes on this. Um, but there's very much a reductionistic tendency in 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 in, tr- in trying to talk about this, and and on that Agnes, I defer I defer to you. Okay.
1: Well, i just say that absolutely, there are plenty of studies that are designed to investigate these sorts of both biological, but also kind of social science or psychological markers of distress or stress or strain. Um, and they all have different qualities to them or pros and cons as to how, you know, explanatory or predictive they are. Um, but one of the things that I find as a historian, who's obviously someone very committed to you know narrative and sort of subjective evidence or people's like account of themselves is that um whenever you're turning to science or or even kind of the more sciencey social sciences to understand emotions and people's like inner lives you know I always think there is a degree of um limitation and in in those those sort of studies ability to really capture what's going on really capture the problems that people are experiencing. Um, and I think one of the things that's also really interesting about the sort of question of metrics is that there is an entire cottage industry of this research that has been going on since the middle decades of the 20th century. We have a huge amount of data at our disposal about these issues that well predate the kind of current COVID crisis. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, I suppose, again, with my kind of cynical historian hat on, I'm interested in like, what at what point do we turn from accumulating information and data to solutions? um because it's very easy to undertake I mean it's not very easy I don't mean to dismiss the kind of intellectual validity of these, this work but you know it's it's one thing to do a study of a community it's a whole different thing to think about well, well what do we do about this problem that has been shown time and time again to be a very real one and one that causes real harm both to individuals and to states and healthcare systems.
0: I guess my cards are on the table in the sense that I asked you about the, the sort of personal anecdotes and the kind of data points you look at first before, and I'm glad you brought you know, into discussion this cottage industry of metrics, and of course it applies um, for satisfaction of all kinds of professions. Uh, it's a really nice point you make about how you operationalize those, and I guess COVID is going to be, if you're, if they're ever going to be operationalized, this is the moment in disaster studies there's always this sort of cautionary note where we say, well, if you've been waiting around for the disaster that's going to change the world, you've been waiting for the wrong thing. It's it's not going to happen. Maybe we'll come to that if COVID is somehow a, a moment where we get beyond the the measures and the studies and actually get to changing practices. But Agnes, just to, to follow up with you a bit, in terms of for doctors and nurses, let's say pre-COVID, what are some of the tools, strategies, ways that they describe um, how they cope with patient pain and death? You know, the kinds of things that most of us don't like to think about, much less talk about, and but are the daily work um, in the clinic, in, in the hospital. How do they cope pre-COVID, non-pandemic?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's a great question. It's also one that really depends on which member of the healthcare team you're talking about. And um, you know, one of the things I've written a lot about is surgery and surgeons have a very different experience of um patient death as say nurses. And um, thankfully we now live in a world where very, very few people die in operating theatres. Some do, but it's very, very uncommon, very unlikely. Um, and then also the way that medical medicine has become increasingly specialized means that death is is in of itself a specialism within medicine. You have people who are experts in palliative care and end-of-life care. And so one of the things that we've seen over the course of the 20th century and into the 21st is a kind of compartmentalization of death within modern healthcare, modern Western healthcare. So you have people who, that you, you have people who are responsible for a lot of the administering of care and treatment, but then once a patient gets to a certain point, they are sort of transferred over to a different person's responsibility. Um, and there are, you know, there's a great expertise in caring for death and dying, like palliative care is, a, is an expert discipline. Um, and I think one of the th- well, consequences, some of the strange, almost paradoxical consequences of this, you know, actually very, I think, positive move is that it has meant that when death surprises healthcare professionals who are not necessarily in those sorts of more specialist roles, um, it can be harder to deal with than if you are, you know, a generalist or if you're kind of in and amongst death all the time, you acquire a set of like, you know, emotional skills, both sort of self-preservation skills, but also the skills required to ameliorate other people's suffering, like caring for the dying or their loved ones. Um, and 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 that's one of the things I think that was so difficult about COVID is that, you know, it it threw a lot of people who had kind of got out of practice with dealing with death onto the front line of, you know, a mass death event. Um, And so that's both, you know, I'm not impugning their, their abilities as physicians, but it does call into question their emotional capacities, perhaps, in terms of like keeping themselves happy and healthy. I mean, happy maybe is too much to ask for, but, you know retain a sense of resilience and kind of um robustness in the face of this sort of tragedy and um, mm-hmm. it's something i think about a lot as a historian who's worked in the 19th century as well as today is that obviously thankfully today very few people it's un- unusual in britain and the uk it britain in the us and canada for a lot of people to die from a like respiratory infectious disease mm-hmm. um, and the sort of that again that sort of progress has sort of meant that and um, whereas doctors in the 19th century were accustomed to this kind of event. And so we're in some ways better equipped to deal with it. Whereas today, with all of our clinical progress, you know, there's I'm not suggesting we should return to <laughs> the 19th century. Oh, I understand. Yes. <laughs> in order to like better equip our physicians. But you know, I do think it's a sort of like something that has made this past year particularly difficult for people.
0: It's interesting it's like a lost sort of skill. It's a skill you want to lose. Right, I guess to a certain degree, but then you find out all of a sudden that it was a skill or a, or a certain kind of habituation that's that's hard for physicians who weren't in that in that space. I mean, I think I've talked about him before, but my neighbor, where I used to live in New Jersey, who was is an anesthesiologist, but then became an intensivist like everybody else, and all of a sudden mm-hmm. he's in the ICU. And so you know, to go from operating room to ICU, and we didn't talk in depth about it, but I'm. I know he saw things that he had not been seeing on his regular scheduled, you know, agenda of, uh, of surgeries for that day. And I and I often wondered how that abrupt shift into the ICU world must have had an impact on him. Um, Agnes, I would just a quick follow up on that. I mean, I don't, I don't know, maybe we'll come to this also. Is that something that's documentable? That shift that, that, sh- and that, that stress and sort of like a physician sort of maybe talking about, Hey, I went into one type of medicine and I found myself for these 18 months in another space in the hospital. Are they talking about that?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I did, so again, you know, I've worked in the history of surgery. And so before COVID, I did a lot of oral history interviews with practicing surgeons, retired surgeons, talking to them specifically about their experiences of death. Hmm. Um, and so I've got lots of information, a lot of, the kind of ideas about impressions of how healthcare practitioners cope with death you know, in the modern world, as it were, and comes from that research. And I then did some follow-up research during the pandemic, talking to not necessarily the same surgeons, but some of the same surgeons, but also surgeons in general, who are an Mm -hmm. interesting category within the kind of whole like COVID world, because their very specialized skill set isn't, wasn't fantastically useful (laughs) during COVID, right? Like they're, you know, they're perfectly competent healthcare professionals in, you know, all sorts of ways, but you know, the thing that they have spent their entire lives training for is not the thing that you need when you're right. dealing with, you know, in in, in in intensive care. And so it was a really interesting, some of them had been, you know, redeployed much like your neighbor to intensive care wards. But some of them had also been kind of left adrift slightly or were doing, mm. um, you know, very different roles within the hospital. So more like portering roles or, you know, kind of sort of doing things that they felt were, you know, not the things they'd been trained for at all. Um, mm. and I think that was not just a kind of you know distressing uh, like new encounter with a death on a new scale, but also kind of troubling to their identity as people who are you know problem solvers and fixers and people who are useful <laughs> in healthcare crises. Yeah. Um so I think you know, and, I, and there are great projects undertaken being undertaken by other people. There's this great NHS at 70 project in, in the UK, which is doing these oral history um uh sort of investigations with all sorts of healthcare professionals. So I do think we'll come out of this pandemic with a pretty good, you know, oral history record of, of these experiences and how people's um how people felt about this shift, both on a kind of practical intellectual level, but also an emotional one.
0: just a reminder that you're listening to COVID calls and we're talking about stress and anxiety during the pandemic with healthcare workers today with Agnes Arnold Forster and Sam Shontland. Um Sam, I want to come to you and, and let's bring history into the conversation. I'll hear from both of you on this. I'm going to start with you, but I, I want to give a quote. You published a piece, a really great article in the made by history um, collection that the Washington post has been doing and a shout out here to Carly Goodman and, and her um, colleagues who've been so wonderful and doing that work. It's just tremendous work. And so let me give a quick quote here to set this up. You write, observers tend to identify the coronavirus ward as an unprecedented battlefield full of unique challenges, and yet it's a product of longstanding issues, insufficient labor protections, excessive working hours, erosion of professional autonomy, and lack of well-funded and institutionalized mental health support for doctors and nurses you write, unless these deeper problems are addressed, we will continue to see these essential workers suffer even after the pandemic recedes. So now we bring history into the flow of our understanding of COVID-19. Tell us about the American experience of this this background that we need so that we can understand what's happening in the ICU. Yeah,
2: absolutely. So, um, I guess i'm gonna i will i'll start with a narrative that um most historians of medicine know and, and then for and for li- and then for listeners who aren't as familiar we'll, we'll go from there um in the late in the late 19th century you, you 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 see doctors um in the united in the united states sort of uh um consolidating at, and cement and cementing their cultural and intellectual and economic um hegemony and as as a, as a result it, during the early 20 like the early to mid 20th century period you, you you see this um there's this invocation of the golden age of American medicine and in, in 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 which and 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 this and this is uh, a very much very much uh a myth that's that that is um promoted to today um but it, but it, but it's it's a, it's, a, it's a great heuristic because people will talk about it as um the, uh, will invoke it in such a way saying oh this is when when doctors were gods and, and, and there was patient, defer there was patient deference and, and, um, uh, we were just, we were just, we were, this is, this is, um, we're, we're just, we're just, um, bacteri- bacteriology and, um, um, and antiseptic, aseptic and surgery are coming in, in, into being and, and, and the, and all all kinds of new tech- technological and medical developments are, are occurring. And then of course, and then in ter- and of course, in term, in term, in terms of the, phys- and the physician, um, Intellectually and affectively, there is there is there is this sense of the of the doctor, um, the, the cultural image of the of the doctor is sort is sort of in, um, invincible and, and heroic, and it's and and this and this is something that that gets entrenched more and more and more as as doctors are are um, relying upon this myth to sort of um, to cement their own their own expertise and, and their own cultural hegemony, so. It's in this in this con- it's in this context um, in sort of post World War II America, which is which is where I which is what I study, that y- you you begin to see a confluence of different of different factors that that begin to to. Um, illuminate what we could think of as um rightfully or wrongfully the origins of the modern physician burnout crisis so you 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 have many of the you have many of these cultural you have many of these cultural elements ab- about um vocation and ser- and service and who and, and and what it requires to be a good to be a good physician um and at this time you you also you also see the there are these tremendous changes that are occurring in terms of the political economy of American medicine. Um, this is at a moment in which prepaid um, health insurance is, is coming into being in the 40s and the, in the 50s so that is, that's already been being experimented with. You see the rise of Medicare and Medicaid. So the federal government um, uh, interfe- interfering or, or, or regulating, uh, depending on who, on who you ask. The AMA was not, was not too happy about it, as you can imagine. Um, and so you have all these economic changes. And, and that, of course, causes a, a great amount of um, Distress it causes a great amount of anxiety and distress on behalf of clinicians, and, and they and they start to, and they start uh, agonize and they start agonizing over the um, the impact the impact on, 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 of how they're ultimately going to practice medicine. So while so um and, and you and you see this in terms of discussions about house calls, in terms of clinic time, all all, all kinds of stuff, and it, and it's often expressed in terms of the language of stress and strain, and and discontent and discontent. Um, you even hear the term uh, the disgruntled pediatrician uh, in, in in the nineteen in the 1960s um, and uh, but that's a, that's a whole other story so anyway at this time at this time you have these you have these political you have these uh, political economic changes you have these cult these cultural changes you also had you also have big shifts in in, in terms of um, Understandings about how doctors are, are supposed to be social are supposed to be socialized. This is a moment in which medical uh, medical sociology and medical anthropology are sort of coming are coming into are coming into their own, and and uh, people are, are trying to understand um, the, the um, I mean, of course, like we we have the Parsonian sort of sick role, but people are trying to understand how doctors are socialized. So we have the pioneering work of Renee of Renee Fox and many uh, and um, uh, Becker um, and, and people who are studying the boys in white, and of course they've conflicting views but it's at this time that people are try, are trying to make sense of what does it mean to be a doctor in the 19, in, in the 1950s at, at seemingly the, the the height of scientific med- of scientific post-war scientific medicine and they're also and in, amidst all of this there are, there are also there are also there are also changes in the way medical uh, I mean residen- residencies have already been firmly entrenched after World War II because of it's more likely to, you're more likely to get paid. Um, if you have specialist training, uh, there's cha- so there, there, are, there are a number of there are a number of things that are coalescing that um, begin to that begin. And also their anxieties about how doc, um, doctors and their families are, are, are what's the role of uh, of the doctor and his family to the larger community. And that prompts all kinds of anxiety. So it's a confluence of all these different things mm. that we we begin to we we begin to see by. And certainly these issues are, are going on in the, in the early 20th century, as, like, as historian and physician uh, Rupi Legha shows in, her, in one of her articles. But it's certainly it's in the post-World War II era that we, we see the manifestation of a lot of the things that we, we start to begin to think about today.
0: Agnes, how does this history that Sam has been detailing for us so nicely, how does, it, how does that look in the UK? Right. Is it similar?
1: Well, obviously, the UK healthcare system is very different, as it likes to insist as well, (laughs) from the US. um,
0: And the US
2: likes to insist as well that it's not anything like the NHS.
1: They are each other's bogeymen, as it were. Um, But the you know, obviously in the UK since 1948, we've had a nationalised state state-funded healthcare system, and most doctors were employees of the state. Um, so obviously that's very different. Um, the other big difference is that healthcare professionals, doctors and nurses, and ancillary healthcare workers in the UK have a much more robust history of unionisation, and so have gone on strike at various points about working conditions and the like. Um, but I just you know, those sorts of big, major structural differences aside, I think that kind of cultural history of medicine that Sam's describing is a transatlantic one and is definitely a kind of an Anglophone cultural history of medicine. Um, and so you definitely have similar ideas about vocation, about commitment, about medical hierarchy. You have a rapid transformation across the 19th century of doctors reinventing themselves as socially useful and, um, you know, socially elite members of society. And people who are actually, you know, can do things that are useful and cure people and treat people, and, you know, rather than being the kind of quacks and charlatans of the earlier period. Um, And that's like, you know, that's a huge kind of cultural undertaking, a huge rhetorical undertaking that they pretty much successfully achieved by the 20th century. Um, And so, my area of real expertise, especially in this area is a kind of post-war period, and, and the post-war period is really marked by some incredibly familiar and recognisable problems. You know, a lot of the issues that we talk about now in healthcare amongst some stress and strain and overwork are there in the 1950s and 60s, you know, incredibly long working hours. We're talking by 1976, the average junior doctor in the UK works an 86-hour week. Um, which means you're having people who are working much more than that, as well as people who are working less. Um, and you have repeated um, sort of contention about um, the amount of labor that is being demanded of these healthcare professionals. And this is true for nurses as well. You also have the kind of, especially into the 70s and 80s, an increasing managerialism in healthcare. Um, which comes up against a huge amount of opposition by doctors who see this as an encroachment of their kind of traditional autonomy and authority in clinical settings, and a lot of disgruntlement about kind of Thatcherite policies about, you know, sort of quasi-privatization, and an increasing kind of, I suppose, for want of a better word, like neoliberal culture that is increasingly individualized and locates the sort of sources and solution to stress and strain in the individual person rather than in the sort of system more broadly Um, but one of the things i'd say that is most difficult about being a historian of people who are still very much alive and which you know every day i regret that i've made this chronological (laughs) shift Um, but is that they they have their own narratives of their own histories right so um, you know one of the things that's really tricky i think about what i do you know woe is me is that um doctors can be very um uh, allured by a sort of nostalgic rose-tinted vision of what medicine once was. And so it's very difficult to tease out, like change over time. It's very difficult to work out whether, you know, these things that, like there's a lot of like, oh, it was so great in the good old days when, you know, yes, we worked really long hours, but at least we had autonomy over our, our days and our schedules and our and our patients. Um, and so it's quite difficult to tease out, I think, what exactly has gone on in terms of improvement or, or decline in the kind of quality of working conditions but what we do know is that it's been pretty rough for a long time and there's been a lot of study of this you know these negative working conditions or these poor working conditions and there's also been very little um, improvement um, and very few policy interventions that have actually I think made a tangible and positive difference to the emotional experiences of of particularly doctors at work. Mm -hmm.
0: Uh, Let's talk about uh, changes we may have seen in medical education sam you know again back to this post-war period in the united states or anywhere else that you may be familiar with Mm -hmm. this you know amount of stress and strain and then how that begins to be reflected in terms of institutional change doctors and nurses going on strike whatever sort of forms of dissent there may be um Mm -hmm. how is that addressed in medical education throughout this period or is it i i don't know i mean one would think that the reality of the workplace then filters back to the preparation that you give uh, students before they enter the profession. But I know in some fields like engineering, that's not always the way it has worked historically.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's it's a it's a great question. It's one that it's one that I am banging my head against the wall quite a bit trying to trying, trying to think through. Um, I'll take a, I'll take a here's my stab at it. I guess um, cer- certainly um, in the in the 1950s and 60s you uh, at as you as you start to see um sort of out as you I get I um outsiders uh, be, beginning to um study study um the um the sort of uh non-scientific aspects that in, in influence clinical clinical care in a very in a very sort of external in a sort of very externalist sort of way. Um you you start you start to you start to See them being these kinds of experts being integrated into medical education. So in programs like comprehensive care, um, uh, which was a, which was a movement in in the nineteen fifties and sixties, uh, trying to sort of um, it meant many th- different things to many different people. But in an in an effort to um, get uh, to hint to sort of get at the um, the psychological. The, the psychological and social experiences of patients and doctors and 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 trying and trying to create a, a new kind of a new kind of medicine so you, you start to see these experts sort of being being incorporated and, and sometimes listened to um, most of the time igno- ignored in, in in the beginning um, which often prompts quite a few of them to go off in their own direction uh, in their own directions but in ter- in terms of so by the time by the time you get to the the seven by the time you get to the late sixties and early seventies um, there is a lot of discussion about um, what would eventually be called physician, physician impairment due to um, uh, drug use, uh, uh, so substance substance use, as, as well as sort of emotional impairment. And you 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 start to see, you start to see people um, uh, in terms of graduate medical in terms of what we call graduate medical education, as well as undergraduate medical education, so medical school, trying to trying to create trying to create programs to uh, to mo- to monitor this. Um, Meant uh, often. Often um, there there are some act, there are some activists who uh, in this in this period um, many of them many of them uh, students many of them um, aligned with the um, what would eventually uh, uh, many of them who were part of the house staff unionization efforts in the in the late 1960s through the early 1980s um, trying to fight for better work working conditions and you you, you find you find them um, pu- pushing for more uh, more. Um, psychological, uh, more psychological services, more, um, uh, more flexibility in terms of work. And, and the AMA actually, the AMA actually partnered, partners with them and, uh, in, in the, in the seventies. And, but in terms, in terms of how it plays out across the educational landscape, there are a number, there are a number of these act, there are a number of these activists and you could say there's a network, but it's not particularly coherent of people who are, who are, who are trying to, um, Bring, it, uh, bring attention to um, sort of a lack of sort of uh, of uh, due to uh, they're pain, pain, um, pointing to physician impairments, but on the but on the other hand, they're also pointing to the emotional distress and dehumanization that uh, students are undergoing, and you start, you start to see people int- uh, beginning to introduce. Um, what we we think of as sort of proneness wellness wellness exercises and and psychological psychological counseling. and and this fe- faces a lot of opposition and and, and the history uh, reflects um, particular in, uh, particular um, uh, inst- institutional specificities. So for example, um, uh, at, du- at Duke, one of one of my historical actors, who is a medical anthropologist turn um, physician, uh, health and well-being activist. Um, had the support of the chair of of um, internal medicine at Duke, uh, and he was he was very successful. But um, but in a different department at Duke, um, like I think in radiology, a, a, um, this is in the late this is in the mid to late seventies, um, they were not so they were not so supportive. So it, it was very so, um, and and certainly. And then I'll give you an example here at the University of Michigan, uh, and the, and then um, I'll turn over to Agnes or, or however we wish to proceed. Um, at the University of Michigan, we, we had we create um, we actually had a uh, early uh, medical student um, and resident um, mental health mental health clinic because there were, had been quite a few suic- there had been quite a few suicides in the 70s uh, in the in the medical school and in the de- and in the dental school and uh, they they create they created a they created a, a service and um, it was quite bustling o- only. And there, and there were some people who were who realized that okay, there's, it's politically expedient to have have this. We can't have students. It doesn't look good for the profe- It doesn't look good for the profession to have students dying by suicide. Um, and then only only to have by night uh, by 1985 to have the program sort of uh, vanish a- after uh, one of one of the um, the assistant deans who was r- running it uh, essentially took another took another job. So it's it very much reflects the institutional reality, the institutional and geographical realities. Um, and oh, and certainly, there were changes. There were there were lots of things that were proposed, but um, some stuck, many didn't. Hmm.
0: Just just a reminder, you're listening to COVID calls. I'm talking to Sam Shotland and Agnes Arnold Forster today about stress and burnout and anxiety among healthcare workers. You know, I want to talk a little bit about culture in all of this, we've had our conversation has been talking a lot about. Um, you know, within the confines of these professions and, and what's happening within the medical s- schools. And let's broaden it out to talk about, you know, people who are not doctors and never plan to be and hope to avoid um, the ICU, or uh, avoid the hospital whenever they can. I think everybody probably has. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> which is most of us, we hope. Um, but at the same time, the fascination is real and and it drives the whole industry of medical popular culture. We all, I mean, everybody probably has their shows or their movies that they grew up with that define what they thought. What happened in a hospital, For I'll date myself, it was, for me, it was MASH and then Trapper right. John M.D. Now, my mom would talk about Dr. Kildare. Uh, later generations will have their own that they talk about. So, and I've thought about this in preparation for this conversation. And I thought, what did I, you know, even at that age when I might have been deciding, hey, am I going to go into healthcare work of some type? Uh, And I didn't have the science grades to pull it off, but if I'd wanted to, what would I have been thinking? What was the life of a doctor? And a lot of what was in that space was formed by these medical dramas, and one of the defining features of that was the stress and the strain on the physician and their ability to master it and overcome it because of the broader imperative of saving lives. And so that they had to be sacrificed and they coped with it. I think MASH is quite brilliant at this because you see in the tent at the end of the day, the different doctors deal with it in different ways. Um, So they do, I think MASH is interesting because they do explore sort of varieties of emotional experience of physicians. But at the end of the day, they get up in the morning and they go back in the tent and they do another 18 hour day. So um, that's my very cursory sort of introduction to this. And I wonder, Agnes, maybe if... You've been thinking about this, writing about this role of the heroic physician and what we do in the broader culture, maybe that we shouldn't in terms of building that myth.
1: Absolutely. This is really one of my favorite things to talk about, so I'm very pleased you brought it up. Um, But yeah, absolutely. I mean, what we were talking before about that like kind of medical culture, that sort of program of self-promotion of doctors, is that it was really taken up with great enthusiasm by the producers of popular culture in the 20th century. Um, And so I am primarily a historian of Britain, and in Britain they had the first basically the first soap opera in Britain was called, it uh, was a medical drama, a medical soap opera, also known as a carbolic soap opera, um, which was called Emergency War 10, which was exactly that thing of like heroic self-sacrifice, of, um, you know, a sort of uh, an emotional detachment, um, you know, and and the surgeons and the physicians, the male surgeons, and physicians were also sex symbols. And this comes through a lot in my other, great hobby which is medical romance fiction from the post-war period which was also all about cultivating this you know this figure of the doctor as someone who had a certain set of like very attractive macho machismo kind of traits you know very you know the ultimate like granite jawed uh you know the, the man that you wanted to be with or be. Um, and, you know, they were almost always men. Um, and this is also deliberate policy. Like we, I have looked at letters and um, written between script writers and producers talking about how they want to cultivate a particularly positive image of healthcare professionals. You know, in the early years of the NHS, this is, you know, without being too cynical, this is propaganda <laughs> for the medical profession. You know, benign maybe propaganda arguably, but it is nonetheless propaganda. And I've also spoken to a lot of doctors who cite their their experiences of reading these texts or watching these films or TV programs as one of the reasons why they went into medicine in the first place. So we've got lots of evidence to show that they do have an impact on people. And they also have an impact on patient perception of healthcare professionals and what patients can expect of their doctors and what they think a good doctor or good behavior looks like for a physician. Um, and this is important both for like emotional health in terms of like what kind of emotional models you can expect a doctor to have or you think a doctor ought to have in terms of you know resilience, robustness, ability to kind of self you know sacrifice your own well-being for the sake of your patients. But it has also had, I think, quite a big impact on the diversity of the profession. And um, so medicine remains a very male dominated, a very white dominated profession in both Britain and the US. Um, and there is a lot of evidence, like social science evidence, that you know, one of the reasons that can dissuade or attract medical students into different specialties, specifically, or people into medicine generally, is do they think they look like the doctor that they, they know about or that they can imagine? Um, and, and do they think they have those sorts of qualities, those personality traits that are supposed to be the ones you need? Um, and that also has its own impact on, on well-being, right? And about how you've whether you've been included in the profession, whether you feel like your your needs and your specific circumstances are being catered to. And um, so I am I have a vested interest in this because this is, you know, a prime area of research for me. But I also think sure. that this sort of popular culture is like really important and has like real lasting impacts on mm-hmm. on the professions today.
0: Agnes, do you think then that there I mean will we be expecting a, a COVID nineteen drama or um Certainly there'll be films. I wonder if, you know, I, I've been already thinking about this, what kinds of scenes scriptwriters are already sort of imagining. There's so much of what's happened in terms of of death and COVID-19 in the in the United States and in the UK has happened in, in the hot, it's been a special kind of disaster that most people haven't had access to it. Mm-hmm. And so you do need art as a way to grapple with it, I think, I don't know, as you said, the sort of propagandistic history of the medical drama maybe doesn't give us as much hope as one would like that they will, that we can examine it in all of its complexity. But, you know, TV has come a long way, certainly in the last 20 years.
1: And, and representations of doctors have come a long way. I mean, you know, something mm. like Anatomy is, you know, sentimental, but at least it is, you know, it's got colorblind casting, it's got a big range of people who are in different, different sorts of roles. You mm-hmm. know, that's like obviously a good thing and and i do think we'll see a flourishing of of covid related culture one of the things that i thought was quite interesting in the uk is how long-running soap operas both in hospital settings and outside hospital settings so we have one called casualty which is like a kind of you know week night tv program that runs every week and and where they included covid storylines and where they didn't and they'd obviously had to kind of navigate that quite carefully, you know, to what extent are you offering people escapism and what extent are you offering people realism mm-hmm. a big question.
0: So um, we still have a little time left. I think my, if it's okay with my guests, we might turn to a couple more questions. I've been very generous with time, but okay, great. So we still have a couple of things I wanted to try to get to. And part of that is to broaden our understanding of the healthcare workforce. And we've been talking a lot about physicians, but let's talk about um, the way that your research also brings into focus the experience of nurses. But beyond that as, as well, the administrators, the cleaning staff, you know, this category of essential worker was deployed throughout the pandemic in the United States. And I appreciate the category, um, but it, it's not sufficient, really. Um, to describe a workplace as complicated as a hospital, so Sam, let me start with you on this. Same kinds of questions: What tools do we have to understand the experience of mm-hmm. um, non-physician healthcare workers, and what kinds? Of, you know, how do they describe their own experiences? How are we capturing that as as historians and policy analysts?
2: Yeah, it's it's a it's a fantastic it's a fantastic question. It's one that Agnes and I've talked a fair amount about. We're actually um editing a special collect uh we we've just sent in a proposal well uh, a special collection for the journal of the history of medicine and allied sciences which is trying to attend to all healthcare workers experiences in, include including non-clerical non-cler- staff porters um uh not as much genita- genital stuff but social workers and, and nurses all a, a, a whole uh a whole smorgasbord board of, of workers um of course i'll i'll i'll, I'll, I'll save the and an, an, so i'll say that and then secondly and then before i get to my Main comment, um, of course, that when when we say um, we have essential workers, uh, essential to whom and expendable and expendable at what cost, right? So I think histor- I think um, as a as a histo- I mean, I think for for me at least, I I think in terms of my in terms of my work, there, there's a lot to be, there's a lot to be said, and in in, ter- in terms of um, the kind the kinds. Of historical questions we want to ask in, ter- in terms of how physicians relate to non-clerical staff, in, ter- in terms of kind of the emotional health and well-being that um, these workers um, are a- are able to provide because they 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 relieve an administrative stress, and, cer- and certainly in in the fifties and the sixty 60- in the fifties and the sixties and the seventies, and um, well, really, yes, the fifties and the fifties and the sixties, you 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 see a lot you see a lot of you see a lot of physicians. Talking about practice practice planning, which is an old theme, of course, in the in the business of, uh, of the history of the business of medicine, and you see about the role of the medical secretary and the and the, and, and the role of the uh, of the MA and of others, and assen- essentially suggesting that there there is an there is an important role. Now that's just from the physician perspective. From from the perspective uh, from the perspective of um, mo- uh, of the non physicians and, and non nurses, I would. Um, I would, I would argue, I would argue that there are many, there are many ways to get at this. Um, some like histori- uh, Gabe, historian Gabe Winnant has argued in, uh, in his, his book about sort of the rise of, um, the decline uh, of steel and the, and the rise of care that, um, it's very, it's very much the, um, the racially, the racially marginalized, and, and women who are, ta- who, are, who are taking who are taking on, on these roles and he beautifully illustrates this in in his book in terms of in terms of, uh, in terms of um, trying to give a, a cultural history trying to uh, it's 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 really a a economic and policy history but he does get at the social texture of this so there are many way different ways to do this so um I'll give you an example I'll give you an example and then Agnes i'll turn over I'll turn over to you um so in New York there there is a one of the of the biggest uh, healthcare workers unions uh, is called uh, local 1199. And uh, in this, uh, in this, in this period um, in the late seventies, early eighties, they create, they, um, um, they create the, um, the commission, the organization commissioned a musical by, pro- by prominent um, composers and writers. Um, Alan, Ma- Alan Mencken being amongst Alan Menken of the little mermaid and, and other Disney musicals, amongst them, and they did oral histories. And you can, and what's so amazing about this about this musical is you can you can read against the grain to get a sense of what it was like to be a healthcare to be um, a worker. So they're t- they're talking about race, they're talking about sex, they're talking, talking about misogyny, they're they're they're, t- they're talking ab- about the grind. There's even a song called Burnout. Um, uh, from, so they're absolutely so. They're, I I would argue that the way to access this is very much a culture through cultural history, and uh, I'm hoping to explore this in a project at some point. So this is um this is me testing out a few ideas. But yes, I think I think you can I think you can access this through a variety of different ways.
0: Agnes, just bring you in on this as well if you want to extend, extend anything Sam's talking about or your own perspective.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the history of medicine in general, the history of medicine and healthcare has overwhelmingly focused on the experiences of doctors and to a lesser degree nurses, and has really paid very little attention comparatively to all the other members of the healthcare workforce who are, you know, essential to the running and delivery of care and treatment. Um, And this is, you know, true, both as a sort of like academic point about academic history, but it's also true about like, Healthcare policy and sort of healthcare coverage and these sorts of broad categories of essential worker or key worker, you know, collapse, I think, a lot of variation within those big categories. And um, because as someone who is, you know, deeply invested in what samples like the moral imperative of looking at the history of physician wellbeing, you know, you also have to acknowledge that doctors are, you know, have a huge amount of social, intellectual, and financial capital and um, with very secure, um, you know, jobs. Um, whereas most of the people that we're talking about here you know porters, administrative staff and um, cleaners and um, people involved in the laundry, at least in the UK are much more likely to be on insecure contracts, zero hour contracts and um, have don't have the same protections um, that are uh, that are well should be um, owed to physicians and nurses. Um, and are also as Sam mentioned, more likely to be from um, migrant communities or people of color or women. Um, and so you have this sort of compounding of, of um, sort of vulnerability, I suppose, in the kind of, especially in that, like the high-risk environment of a COVID ward, where you know who is who is worthy of protection and who is not, and, and they and they deal with very similar issues like emotional turmoil, the stresses and strains of both patient care and workload and all that kind of stuff, but without necessarily the same um, protections, both kind of legal and employment protections, but also without the same kind of cultural devotion or cultural commendation Um, and so I think it's you know really crucial that we include them in our conversations about these these issues
0: we're we're almost out of time I just want to get one more question in and it comes back to the Washington Post piece that you wrote Uh, and you make the claim there which I'm very fond of this kind of claim that uh, you know the platform for good policy making as we come through and to the other side uh, eventually of this pandemic Um, has to be the historical experience. It can't just be COVID. It has to be the historical experience before COVID and then the life of COVID for healthcare workers. But I'd like to hear from you both about some of the policy interventions that you think are possible. And I'm particularly interested not only in ones that might be ratified by law, but also changes that happen within professional associations, unions, Rules of practice, a lot of times that's where you see impactful change, in my experience, impactful institutional change before it reaches uh, the law, if it ever does. And so, Agnes, let me bring you in first on this, you know, problem of policy rules changes and what we can learn from history to make better policy.
1: Absolutely. Well, in that article, we argued that what we need are structural interventions rather than individualistic ones. So we need things like limited working hours, more robust in-house um, expert mental health care and support. And um, you know, we need a you know a different kind of working climate and working culture as well. And I think one of the things that is maybe slightly demoralising about being a historian of this um, subject, and which I sort of mentioned at the top of the episode, which is you know you look at a long history of you know, mounting evidence of a problem and a long history of repeated attempts to improve the situation. And those attempts don't necessarily have the results that we want to see. Um, And, you know, I'm concerned that going forward, we will continue to make those same errors. And I think one of the things that history can be really useful in doing or illuminating is helping us understand why have these interventions not taken? Why have they not worked? Um, And for me, I think that one of the reasons why you know, there have been repeated attempts in the UK to reduce the number of hours that doctors work, which I think is definitely a good thing. There's some debate over that. I think it's a good thing. And um, I think it's best as well. For <laughs> so. Best for doctors, best for patients. And there's been lots of attempts to do that, and a lot of attempts, you know, industrial action along those lines. And they have been met with resistance, not just from... You know, policy makers and planners, and healthcare workforce, you know, organisers, but from healthcare professionals themselves. Mm. And I think history can help us understand why is it that some doctors, and particularly a powerful, you know, section of doctors, are very resistant to this sort of, you know, policy transformation or these sorts of kind of structural improvements to their working conditions. At the same time, as you know, finding their work very difficult and finding you know that it has real emotional consequences. And I think this goes back again to some of the stuff we were talking about before about these ideas, these incredibly powerful notions of vocation, commitment, self-sacrifice. There's a sort of very pervasive idea, even amongst you know the most progressive doctors, that medicine is somehow distinct from other professions, is different from other jobs. Um, and I can see why that happens. You know, I'm not condemning that as a sort of attitude and an approach. I understand the value that is derived from those feelings. But it does mean that that acts as a powerful obstacle to the kind of workplace reforms that we might see in other industries that might have really improved the working conditions of other professions. And I think medicine remains very resistant to that because, I mean, I'm sure this is going to be kind of quasi-controversial, but like, you know, if you you admit that maybe what you need is, you know, a really good HR system, really great in-house counselling and a really good, you know, like, a rota nine to five kind of approach to your job, then maybe that involves slightly relinquishing some of the myths mm. about your profession and some of the really seductive things about being a doctor. And I think that actually we'd all be much better off if we relinquished ourselves from those sort of historical pressures and we're able to rethink, about, rethink healthcare in a way that is, you know, thinks about it as, as, a, as a form of work, as a form of labor that is subject or can be subject to much of the same sort of you know, ameliorations that we've seen in other industries over the course of the 20th century.
0: Well, thank you for that. I mean, that's a, that's a really, for, really powerful way to frame it. And if that's the trade-off, it's a life and death trade-off for a lot of people in the healthcare space. So this is not, this is not small stakes, um, and maybe I'm not a total pessimist, you know, COVID. Has sharpened people's sensibilities to the stress and strain on the essential care workforce. So let's hope this is a moment of of real change in that regard. Sam, I want to um, give you the last word on that, and I guess you have a unique vantage point, not only as a scholar but as a as a physician on this.
2: Yeah, uh, or, or one very much, very very much in training. Right, right now all all I can, all I can see are bugs and drugs. It's microbiology. So we're having, <laughs> I'm having, I'm having it. Uh, uh, I'm having a great time. With, I'm having a great time with that. But no, I, I think Agnes, I think Agnes is absolutely Agnes's analysis is is absolutely right. Um, I would I would say, I would say that in addition to to sort of relinquishing these sort of um, myths of cultural superior of cultural superiority uh, of or, or of um, invincibility of cultural invincibility, of physician invincibility, I th- I think I would I would al- I would also point to Agnes Agnes. And I and, a, and a, another colleague of ours, uh, Jacob Mo- Jacob Moses, are working on a piece right right now, and in, in which yes, we argue for why there are all these barriers to structural changes in terms of physician well being. So, as Agnes mentioned, there's the cultural one. Secondly, I, uh, we would ar- we would argue that there are a lot of issues associated with sort of medicalizing physician distress. As a um, as a, so in- instead so yes, uh, uh, of course um, there are there are. Doctors who who suffer from who suffer from um, uh, substance who are substance users, and that can that can impair um, their their practice. Or that there, there are there are people who are depressed, um, and that can have an impact. But that doesn't necessarily mean that every single doctor who, who is depressed uh, will, um, makes them a bad physician. And I, I, think, I think the tendency, I mean, especially as physicians, this tendency to uh, turn to sort of a biomedical paradigm to explain everything is exceptionally dangerous and, and doesn't address the larger structural um, components of, of why doctors are facing the stresses that they are. And then thirdly, and then I'll give a specific example of, why history, of, of how history can be useful. Um, thirdly, I, I, would, I would point to, um, there's so much, there's such an emphasis on sort of individualizing responsibility for health uh, to gesture to a theme that we talked about at the beginning of the episode, in terms of um, okay, if if I um, if I light a few if I light a few candles and I and I and I fill out my CBT workbook, um, or if it's not it's, it's it's 1978, um, uh, and I practice a, a a certain a certain kind of force field uh, healing. Um, then things will get things will get better. Or I'll fill out my bur- or I'll fill out my uh, stress survey, which I have a, actually a bunch of in my in my room from the set from the late seventies, um, as opposed to sort of addre- addressing larger questions ab- about um, uh, working hours, ab- about staffing, about precisely the things that Agnes mentioned. And then finally, to sort of um, uh, to make a comment, I think. Um, for me, at least, the, the reason I got interested—the reason I got interested in this work—is is highly per, is highly personal. As Agnes suggested, there that um, so I actually I actually took some time off of medical school for mental for mental health for mental health reasons, and um, I'm now I'm now ba- I'm now back and I'm I'm, fin- I'm finishing up my first year of medical school, and I've watched a number I've watched a number of my classmates who've really who've really struggled, and um, to me and. And of course, having and having now studied the history, having studied the history of this, or studying the history of this, and of what will hopefully be a dissertation, will hopefully be a dissertation project. Uh, knock on wood, or or, or guess. Um, well, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what what, what the substance are is over in the windowsill. Window but um, there is a, there there is a there is a moral imperative, a moral urgency to this kind of work, to uh, in, in terms of looking out for the well being of our colleagues, and frankly, uh, for. The, uh, the being of, um, uh, individuals who just interact with the healthcare system, pa- if you want to use the word patient, sure, but just people who interact with the healthcare system. I think there's a real moral urgency to, um, heal the healers, uh, as, uh, as trite as that expression is, but it's true.
0: You've been listening to COVID calls and you can catch COVID calls most weekdays at 5 30 PM Eastern time. And please join me tomorrow at 5 30 PM Eastern time. When I bring Adam Rogers, uh, staff writer for wired magazine back to COVID calls haven't talked to adam in a while he has a lot of things on his mind he's been doing some great writing we're going to start our conversation tomorrow with the uh, discussion about the lab leak theory so please do join me for that tomorrow at five thirty. and i want to thank my guests agnes arnold forster and sam shotland for a wide-ranging in-depth and to me really illuminating conversation about stress and strain on the healthcare workforce. Thank you both for the work you're doing and for your public, your communication about the work and for taking time today.
2: Thank, Thank you so, so much.
0: Stay healthy, everybody. We'll see you tomorrow, 5.30.